0: She studies my face intently as we stand, her inside and me outside her crib. She even holds my face maternally between her dimpled little hands. Then looking every bit as serious and lawyer-like as her father, she says, as if it may just possibly have slipped my attention, Mommy, there's a world in your eye. As in, don't be alarmed or do anything crazy. And then, gently but with great interest, mommy, where did you get that world in your eye? For the most part, the pain left then.
1: This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Julia Watson, who has selected a piece of life writing by Alice Walker, Beauty When the Other Dancer is the Self first published in Ms. Magazine in 1983, and then included in Walker's collection of nonfiction In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, also in 1983. Julia will provide some additional context for Walker's narrative after I introduce her. Julia Watson is an Academy Professor Emerita of Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University and a core faculty member of Project Narrative. Julia is a former Associate Dean of Arts and Sciences at OSU, as well as an affiliated professor of Germanic languages and literatures and women's gender and sexuality studies. Julia and Sydney Smith have co authored Reading Autobiography, a Guide for Interpreting Life Narratives, first edition 2001, expanded edition 2010, and the third streamlined edition in progress. Julia and Sydney have also uh, put together a volume called Life Writing in the Long Run, a Smith, a Smith and Watson autobiography studies reader, which includes collaborative and solo essays over a quarter century. That was published in 2017, and it's available via open access. Julie and Sidney have also co-edited four collections of essays, including Decolonizing the Subject, 1992, Getting a Life, 1996, Women Autobiography Theory, 1998, and Interfaces, Women Autobiography Image Performance, 2001. And they have co-authored several essays on such topics as testimony, online life narrative, and archives for biography and other journals. In addition, Julia, Julia has published Over 30 single-authored essays. Her most recent are on post-colonial auto-ethnographic film, Philippe Lejeune's oeuvre, online publishing, and women's graphic memoirs, including Alison Bechdel's Fun Home and Miriam Catlin's Letting It Go. Julia has lectured and taught in 20 countries. So, Julia, before you read uh, Alice Walker's Beauty, When the Other Dancer is the Self, What contextual information would you like to provide our listeners about life writing, about Walker, about this piece, anything else?
0: Um, Thanks, Jim, for your introduction to what we now call life writing or narrative, and um, for setting this up so nicely. I thought I'd say a few things uh, about why I chose this story. I often began my general education literature of the self courses with it, because in many ways it's sort of classic life writing. There's lots of chronological coming-of-age stories in it, but it also would surprise students who thought that autobiography was just a monologue about a person's identity and didn't realize it can use dialogue, characterization, metaphor, and encompass quite a wide range of years. Um, Let me also say just a couple of things about Alice Walker for those who may not be familiar with her. She's a prominent and prolific writer and activist. She's published seven novels, and probably most listeners will know The Color Purple best. It came out in 1982. She was the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize, and of course it became both a movie by Steven Spielberg and a Broadway show in 2005. Walker has written in many genres several books of short stories, considerable poetry, a memoir, and collections of essays and diaries most recently. And she was very interested as a young writer in the 70s in Zora Neale Hurston and has an essay called Looking for Zora that is credited with rediscovering Hurston, a writer from the Harlem Renaissance who was long forgotten. It's also important for this essay, I think, to know that Walker grew up in a large family of sharecroppers in rural Georgia. She then moved north, graduated from Sarah Lawrence College, and was selected by Gloria Steinem to become an editor at Ms., which, as Jim told you, is where this story first appeared, Um, I think you might listen for a couple of things initially as I'm reading. One is refrains, that is, repeated phrases or sentences, and also what we in life writing call turning points, those places where the narrative shifts and the narrating eye marks a shift in the narrated or experiencing eyes perspective. Um, <clears throat> let me just conclude this before reading by also saying that in returning to the story after, oh, probably 15 years and reading it out loud, I was surprised to discover how much it moved me to the point that I sometimes choked up. So if that happens today, don't worry, Jim. We'll just take okay. over for a moment.
1: Oh, that's good, that's good, <laughs> Joy. All right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, That's a great uh, way of framing things. Uh, So now, here's Julia Watson reading Alice Walker's Beauty, When the Other Dancer is the Self.
0: It is a bright summer day in 1947. My father, a fat, funny man with beautiful eyes and a subversive wit, is trying to decide which of his eight children he will take with him to the county fair. My mother, of course, will not go. She is knocked out from getting most of us ready. I hold my neck stiff against the pressure of her knuckles as she hastily completes the braiding and then beribboning of my hair. My father is the driver for the rich old white lady up the road. Her name is Miss May. She owns all the land for miles around as well as the house in which we live. All I remember about her is that she once offered to pay my mother 35 cents for cleaning her house, raking up piles of her magnolia leaves, and washing her family's clothes and that my mother, she of no money, eight children, and a chronic earache, refused it. But I do not think of this in 1947. I am two and a half years old. I want to go everywhere my daddy goes. I'm excited at the prospect of riding in a car. Someone has told me fairs are fun, that there's room in the car for only three of us doesn't faze me at all. Whirling happily in my starchy frock, showing off my biscuit-polished patent-leather shoes and lavender socks, tossing my head in a way that makes my ribbons bounce, I stand, hands on hips, before my father. Take me, Daddy, I say with assurance. I'm the prettiest. Later, it does not surprise me to find myself in Miss May's shiny black car, sharing the back seat with the other lucky ones does not surprise me that I thoroughly enjoy the fair. At home that night, I tell the unlucky ones all I can remember about the merry-go-round, the man-who-eats-live-chickens, and the teddy bears, until they say, That's enough, baby Alice. Shut up now and go to sleep. It is Easter Sunday, 1950. I am dressed in a green, flocked, scalloped hem dress, handmade by my adoring sister Ruth, that has its own smooth satin petticoat and tiny hot pink roses tucked into each scallop. My shoes, new T-strap patent leather, again highly biscuit polished. I am six years old and have learned one of the longest Easter speeches to be heard that day, totally unlike the speech I said when I was two, Easter lilies pure and white blossom in the morning light. When I rise to give my speech, I do so on a great wave of love and pride and expectation. People in the church stop rustling their new crinolines. They seem to hold their breath. I can tell they admire my dress, but it is my spirit bordering on sassiness, womanishness. They secretly applaud. That girl's a little mess, they whisper to each other, pleased. Naturally, I say my speech without stammer or pause unlike those who stutter, stammer, or, worst of all, forget. This is before the word beautiful exists in people's vocabulary, but, oh, isn't she the cutest thing frequently floats my way? And got so much sense, they gratefully add, for which thoughtful addition I thank them to this day. It was great fun being cute, but then, one day, it ended. I am eight years old and a tomboy. I have a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, checkered shirt and pants, all red. My playmates are my brothers, two and four years older than I. Their colors are black and green, the only difference in the way we are dressed. On Saturday nights, we all go to the picture show, even my mother. Westerns are her favorite kind of movie. Back home, on the ranch, We pretend we are Tom Mix, Hopalong Cassidy, Lash LaRue. We've even named one of our dogs Lash LaRue. We chase each other for hours, rustling cattle, being outlaws, delivering damsels from distress. Then my parents decide to buy my brother's guns. They're not real guns. They shoot BBs, copper pellets my brothers say will kill birds. Because I am a girl, I do not get a gun. Instantly... I am relegated to the position of Indian. Now there appears a great distance between us. They shoot and shoot at everything with their new guns. I try to keep up with my bow and arrows. One day, while I am standing on top of our makeshift garage, pieces of tin nailed across some poles, holding my bow and arrow and looking out toward the fields, I feel an incredible blow in my right eye. I look down, just in time to see my brother lower his gun. Both brothers rush to my side. My eye stings and I cover it with my hand. If you tell, they say, we will get a whipping. You don't want that to happen, do you? I do not. Here's a piece of wire, says the older brother, picking it up from the roof. Say you stepped on one end of it and the other flew up and hit you. The pain is beginning to start. Yes, I say. Yes, I will say that is what happened. If I did not say this is what happened, I know my brothers will find ways to make me wish I had, but now I will say anything that gets me to my mother. Confronted by our parents, we stick to the lie agreed upon. They place me on a bench on the porch, and I close my left eye while they examine the right. There is a tree growing from underneath the porch that climbs past the railing to the roof. It is the last thing my right eye sees. I watch as its trunk, its branches, and then its leaves are blotted out by the rising blood. I am in shock. First, there is intense fever, which my father tries to break using lily leaves bound around my head. Then there are chills. My mother tries to get me to eat soup. Eventually, I do not know how, my parents learn what happened. A week after the accident, they take me to see a doctor. Why did you wait so long to come, he asks, looking into my eye and shaking his head. Eyes are sympathetic, he says. If one is blind, the other will likely become blind too. This comment of the doctors terrifies me. But it is really how I look that bothers me most. Where the BB pellet struck, there is a glob of whitish scar tissue. A hideous cataract on my eye. Now, when I stare at people, a favorite pastime up to now, they will stare back, not at the cute little girl, but at her scar. For six years, I do not stare at anyone, because I do not raise my head. Years later, in the throes of a midlife crisis, I ask my mother and sister whether I changed after the accident. No, they say puzzled. What do you mean? What do I mean? I am eight and for the first time doing poorly in school where I have been something of a whiz since I was four. We have just moved to the place where the accident occurred. We do not know any of the people around us because this is a different county. The only time I see the friends I knew is when we go back to our old church. The new school is the former state penitentiary. It is a large stone building, cold and drafty, crammed to overflowing with boisterous, ill-disciplined children. On the third floor, there is a huge circular imprint of some partition that has been torn out. What used to be here, I ask a sullen girl next to me on our way past it to lunch. The electric chair, says she. At night, I have nightmares about the electric chair and about all the people reputedly fried in it. I'm afraid of the school where all the students seem to be budding criminals. What's the matter with your eye, they ask critically. When I don't answer, I can't decide whether it was an accident or not. They shove me, insist on a fight. My brother, the one who created the story about the wire, comes to my rescue, but then brags so much about protecting me, I become sick. After months of torture at the school... My parents decide to send me back to our old community, to my old school. I live with my grandparents and the teacher they board, but there's no room for Phoebe, my cat. By the time my grandparents decide there is room and I ask for my cat, she cannot be found. Miss Yarborough, the boarding teacher, takes me under her wing and begins to teach me to play the piano. But soon she marries an African, a prince, she says, and is whisked away to his continent. At my old school, there is at least one teacher who loves me. She is the teacher who knew me before I was born and bought my first baby clothes. It is she who makes life bearable. It is her presence that finally helps me turn on the one child at the school who continually calls me one-eyed bitch, One day I simply grab him by his coat and beat him until I am satisfied. It is my teacher who tells me my mother is ill. My mother is lying in bed in the middle of the day, something I have never seen. She is in too much pain to speak. She has an abscess in her ear. I stand looking down on her, knowing that if she dies, I cannot live. She is being treated with warm oils and hot bricks held against her cheek. Finally, a doctor comes, but I must go back to my grandparents' house. The weeks pass, but I am hardly aware of it. All I know is that my mother might die, my father is not so jolly, my brothers still have their guns, and I am the one sent away from home. You did not change, they say. Did I imagine the anguish of never looking up? I am 12. When relatives come to visit, I hide in my room. My cousin Brenda, just my age, whose father works in the post office and whose mother is a nurse, comes to find me. Hello, she says. And then she asks, looking at my recent school picture, which I did not want taken, and on which the glob, as I think of it, is clearly visible, You still can't see out of that eye? No, I say, and flop back on the bed over my book. That night, as I do almost every night, I abuse my eye. I rant and rave at it in front of the mirror. I plead with it to clear up before morning. I tell it I hate and despise it. I do not pray for sight, I pray for beauty. You did not change, they say. I am 14 and babysitting for my brother, Bill, who lives in Boston. He is my favorite brother, and there is a strong bond between us. Understanding my feelings of shame and ugliness, he and his wife take me to a local hospital where the glob is removed by a doctor named O. Henry. There is still a small bluish crater where the scar tissue was, but the ugly white stuff is gone. Almost immediately, I become a different person from the girl who does not raise her head, or so I think. Now that I've raised my head, I win the boyfriend of my dreams. Now that I've raised my head, I have plenty of friends. Now that I've raised my head, classwork comes from my lips as faultlessly as Easter speeches did, and I leave high school as valedictorian, most popular student, and queen, hardly believing my luck. Ironically, the girl who was voted most beautiful in our class, and was, was later shot twice through the chest by a male companion using a real gun while she was pregnant. But that's another story in itself. Or is it? You did not change, they say. It is now 30 years since the accident. A beautiful journalist comes to visit and to interview me, She is going to write a cover story for her magazine that focuses on my latest book. Decide how you want to look on the cover, she says, glamorous or whatever. Never mind glamorous, it is the whatever that I hear. Suddenly, all I can think of is whether I will get enough sleep the night before the photography session. If I don't, my eye will be tired and wander, as blind eyes will. At night, in bed with my lover, I think up reasons why I should not appear on the cover of a magazine. My meanest critics will say I've sold out, I say. My family will now realize I write scandalous books. But what's the real reason you don't want to do this, he asks. Because in all probability, I say in a rush, my eye won't be straight. It will be straight enough, he says. Then, Besides, I thought you'd made your peace with that. And I suddenly remember that I have. I remember. I am talking to my brother Jimmy, asking if he remembers anything unusual about the day I was shot. He does not know I consider that day the last time my father, with his sweet home remedy of cool lily leaves, chose me and that I suffered and raged inside because of this well he says all i remember is standing by the side of the highway with daddy trying to flag down a car a white man stopped but when daddy said he needed somebody to take his little girl to the doctor he drove off i remember i am in the desert for the first time i fall totally in love with it i am so overwhelmed by its beauty i confront it for the first time I confront for the first time consciously the meaning of the doctor's words years ago. Eyes are sympathetic. If one is blind, the other will likely become blind too. I realize I have dashed about the world madly, looking at this, looking at that, storing up images against the fading of the light. But I might have missed seeing the desert. The shock of that possibility and gratitude for over 25 years of sight sends me literally to my knees. Poem after poem comes, which is perhaps how poets pray. On Sight. I am so thankful I have seen the desert and the creatures in the desert and the desert itself. The desert has its own moon, which I have seen with my own eye. There is no flag on it. Trees of the desert have arms, all of which are always up. That is because the moon is up, the sun is up, also the sky, the stars, clouds, none with flags. If there were flags, I doubt the trees would point. Would you? But mostly I remember this. I am 27 and my baby daughter is almost three. Since her birth, I have worried about her discovery that her mother's eyes are different from other people's. Will she be embarrassed, I think? What will she say? Every day, she watches a television program called Big Blue Marble. It begins with a picture of the earth as it appears from the moon. It is bluish, a little battered looking, but full of light, with whitish clouds swirling around it. Every time I see it, I weep with love, as if it is a picture of Grandma's house. One day, when I am putting Rebecca down for her nap, she suddenly focuses on my eye. Something inside me cringes, gets ready to try to protect myself. All children are cruel about physical differences I know from experience, and that they don't always mean to be is another matter. I assume Rebecca will be the same. But no. She studies my face intently as we stand, her inside and me outside her crib. She even holds my face maternally between her dimpled little hands. Then looking every bit as serious and lawyer-like as her father, she says, as if it may just possibly have slipped my attention, Mommy, there's a world in your eye. As in, don't be alarmed or do anything crazy. And then, gently but with great interest, Mommy, where did you get that world in your eye? For the most part, the pain left then. So what if my brothers grew up to buy even more powerful pellet guns for their sons and to carry real guns themselves, so what if a young Moorhouse man once nearly fell off the steps of Trevor Arnett Library because he thought my eyes were blue? Crying and laughing, I ran to the bathroom while Rebecca mumbled and sang herself off to sleep. Yes, indeed, I realized looking into the mirror, there was a world in my eye. And I saw that it was possible to love it, that in fact for all it had taught me of shame and anger and inner vision, I did love it. Even to see it drifting out of orbit in boredom or rolling up out of fatigue, not to mention floating back at attention and excitement, bearing witness, a friend has called it, deeply suitable to my personality and even characteristic of me. That night, I dream I am dancing to Stevie Wonder's song, Always. The name of the song is really Oz, but I hear it as always. As I dance, whirling and joyous, happier than I've ever been in my life, another bright-faced dancer joins me. We dance and kiss each other and hold each other through the night. The other dancer has obviously come through all right, as I have done. She is beautiful, whole, and free. And she is also me.
1: I might be sure that I'll be loving you always. Cause now, I can't reveal the mystery of tomorrow. Day Just as time new to move on Since the beginning And the seasons know exactly when to change Just as kindness knows no shame nothing for your joy and pain But I'll be loving you always As day I living by Thank you, Julia. Uh, that was great. And uh, I think, you know, maybe um, one of the things we can uh, get into is why it's so affectively powerful. Mm. Um, but maybe well, let's not start there. i will give you some time <laughs> to, some time. to <laughs> <laughs> compose yourself, and so I think about some of the. Uh, it's such a rich piece, right? and there's so much to talk about. But um, yeah. um, maybe we can start with um, time and you know temporality. Okay. Right? We have you know she's. N- narrating um, you know these various um, incidents and she marks the time I am right. two and a half, I'm six, I'm eight, I'm fourteen, right. etc um, you know so what what stands out uh, for you about about the time and how uh, Walker handles that, even if you want to talk about the tense or
0: Sure you know. yeah I mean, one of the first thing that struck me, and it always my this my students always notice. Thank goodness, um, is that it's in the present tense I throughout, except for one paragraph, the second to the last paragraph, um, and it's of course as first person. We have to think. Well, what kind of first person is this? As you reminded me the other day, Jim, there's a difference between historical first person present, which is retrospective. And what is called in uh, narratology, simultaneous first person, which narrates an event as it's occurring. But here, of course, um, in the way that it's narrated, at each age, we're taken into the experience of the moment because each segment focuses so closely on a particular moment or couple of moments. And that's quite powerful, I think.
1: Yeah and uh, and doing that there is that sense of um this is how I was experiencing right. it then right yes. this is this is my perspective at the time right. and that the present tense really kind of rein, reinforces yes. that yeah. yeah yeah i mean it is also you know there are these times um when she will c- call attention to herself at, in the time of the telling like um you know um i'm th- i'm grateful uh, for that to this day right, right when the yes. people are telling her you know she's yes. so smart not just cute but but sensible. also smart. <laughs> sensible right you know that kind of thing um uh, so we do get we do get a little bit i mean i think those things also kind of um uh, mark the uh, idea that um this is memory right even yes. though we're doing uh, you know historical present, and i 'm mm-hmm. recapturing mm-hmm. sort of what it felt like to me at the time um, this this still uh, this this memory yeah um,
0: yeah, and i 'd even want to call it felt memory as mm. as opposed to what so often happens in life writing, which is a memory by a very distinct present time i somehow you have the feeling that as as she narrates this there's there's a sense of of the feeling of that time, it's in the voice, in the reiteration, for example, with the little girl of words like cute, and it feels like it's more than a rehearsal of a set of facts, that it Mm -hmm. is a working into how that felt.
1: Right, right, yeah, and I think the other thing with sort of the the fluctuation of, you know, the the dominant uh, historical present, but the awareness of it that's Mm -hmm. being historical, is that there is also a, a kind of interesting fluctuation between voice mm-hmm. at the time of the action mm-hmm. and voice at the time of the telling. Like right. she takes advantage of being able to articulate as mm-hmm. an adult, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things that she experienced when she right. was when she was a young child, right?
0: And couldn't have put and into those the, words at that time. Yeah, I mean, exactly, yeah. particularly after the injury to the eye, you know, and, yeah. and the way she didn't look up for years, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: so in that way there's the um this technique mm-hmm. right of handling the time and the consequences of uh what it has for voice um and perspective right there this there's this relationship between the the her handling of these formal matters. And the thematics of, mm-hmm. of this you know of the story mm-hmm. right um, a lot of it is about vision right, right? Um, and beauty um, and and also you know being able to articulate certain kinds mm-hmm. of things um, um, so anyway, just what are your some of your thoughts about about those matters this, this relation between the, the formal um, technical aspect of it and the the broader sort of thematics
0: right. Well, there's lots of things to say there. And, you know, only in the past few days have I been noticing how much it's written in these short sentences, what Mm. get called little hypotactic sentences Mm. without causal conjunctions, and how much it's it's narrated in a sense through the body and through externals, whether seen or felt. And and that's not exactly what you asked, but I want to put that in there because I, I think it's important to it um so and i guess for me the refrains are also crucial there that mm-hmm. that it's segmented into little stories right. that are quite you know and they they are not interconnected i mean it's more striking on the page where there are big white spaces the faces, between right. them but it is also there is not the effort in a sense to to make Clear lines from one to the next. Right, these right. are these are separable vignettes yeah. that are threaded together through through metaphors of sight and through through right. belonging to the family. Right, um, and
1: then and some kinds of you know consequences of of certainly the injury. Yes, but without sort of saying, well, you know, this happened, and then because of that, this right. next thing happened. Right. Right? There, right. There is a sense of. Of a kind of overarching experience, Mm -hmm. Um, and there are you know there are these connections um, that sort of um, or not so much connections but but developments that follow from this this big precipitating uh, event. But yes,
0: yes, but it's 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 segmented um, rather than sequenced as 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 a continuous narrative. Which I think is kind of surprising. You don't see a lot of reflection in between, from one to the next, by the present tense narrator saying, "This is how I now interpret that." They simply follow on one another. Yeah,
1: Yeah, right. And and it's interesting too that a lot of the reflection is embedded in the, you know, the, the the. time of the action right right so yeah, you know the whole, the whole the whole in the refrain about mm-hmm. you know did I change right, um, right. and um, you know she's thinking that at the time of the action right and, yes um, so there is you know there's a reflect she's thinking about well I did change all these ways but did others notice and when I ask right. you know they, they say no
0: yeah um, and of course you hear there in a sense it's the start of some kind of consciousness of of a contrast between the former cute little girl and what she's become. But it's um, emphasized mostly through, um, from everyone else's point of view, and it's hard to talk about this without using all these metaphors of sight, Um, you did not change. You did not change. You did not change. And, and... um, and in a sense i think so much of her um uh, feelings at the time are suppressed into action i mean that's mm-hmm. i mean the the rage when she's called the one-eyed bitch and yeah. just beats the <laughs> guy up till he's satisfied you know we don't get a lot of detail of emotion just boom the yeah, satisfaction right, right. of yeah. doing an action
1: yeah yeah and then that that uh, what you just said about um, you know the did I change and mm-hmm. and so on it does bring up the way in which this is a you know story about it's obviously about younger Alice but it's also about her relations with with family and right. others and so on and you know I know that relationality is something that you and Sid talk about some in your work on. Uh, life writing, so yes. you know. How, how do you see it playing out here? What do you?
0: Well, relationality is a word that's become big in life writing studies these days, um, and in a sense arose, I would say, as early as the '80s, um, in the recognition that eyes are not I, yeah. capital eyes <laughs> are not separate and autonomous. That a sto- one story almost always implicates. Other stories and relationships with others um, and I mean, John Aiken says very nicely, I think that that autobiographical writing is not just the autobiography of the self but the biography and the autobiography of the other, especially mm-hmm. if it's a kind of a close or special other, so that it's an effort in a sense to move into seeing others. Not from the outside, but in a relation where one sees them seeing oneself. Yeah. And so pronouns become really important in this. First, second, and, and third pronouns merge or change places sometimes. I mean, I think it's very striking that in this story, the last sentence is, and she is yeah. also me. me.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah 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 I do want to come back to yes spend some uh, you know spend some time on that last paragraph right. but uh just i mean in, in this connection right the though maybe think a little bit about or one of the things that strikes me is how that that whole you know middle section about um did I change and mm-hmm. so on and they say no and she's so aware of what she uh that she did change that you know from a reader's perspective there's this sense of well, they miss things, right. but also that, well, maybe, she, you know, she's not fully aware of how she carried on, right? Right. right? I mean, so it's just right. kind of, right. uh, you know, the relationality there is sort of more complex than just you know, like her perspective yeah. of, yeah. you know, the, the time of the action. How could you not have noticed? Right.
0: Know? Well, and, of course, she doesn't, in a sense, take us into her interior one repeated refrain is, "I did not raise my head," right? You know, and then the conversations with the eye and and the ugliness of the eye. It's it's displaced into um,
1: things that again. are embodied, yes, yeah. and yeah, action, embodied action yes. again, right, yes. right. And you know, she didn't raise her head because she didn't want people looking at her eye, right. and she didn't want to be, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, then I think, you know, that sort of opens up the way in which, you know, the uh, relationality is also kind of connected to intersectionality, right? Yes. And, and the, the sort of the multiple aspects of her identity, which are, um, you know, play into the whole story, right? So you know she's the girl right, right. she doesn't get a gun right? right she wants to be the cutest right yep. she wants to be daddy's yep. girl right yep. all that stuff right um,
0: yeah there's a lot of marking of gender difference here i mean interestingly i mean i don't remember hearing the word intersectionality in the early 80s but no. it really informs this story and and walker i think is someone whose work you know is is richly read by looking at intersectionality um I mean, just for gendered you know there's so much there's there's certainly her tomboyishness right, and right. the reminder that she has to play the Indian yeah. and in a in a much sort of darker frame, the emphasis it's not that prominent in the story, but men and guns, and the harm yeah, it does you know right. it's it's there to be read
1: right, and she you know she even comes back to it yeah. towards the end about absolutely. you know her brothers and their they're Gun, real guns, guns right? yeah exactly and yeah. and the girl who okay, you know okay. was shot the, twice the most beautiful in the chest. girl the most right beautiful girl. Yep. maybe this is a, it's another story but maybe it is. or is it or, <laughs> or is, is it? it you know right, yeah, right.
0: Yeah. which of course reminds us in part 2 of i mean walker's an early and prominent activist you know mm-hmm. she's not the writer away from the world but the writer very much in the world and and by 1982 certainly because it's the first chapter in this collection of um, in search of our mother's mm-hmm. gardens it's it's a definition of what womanishness is her term right and, and she's a womanist as opposed to being a feminist and in some ways my favorite definition of of hers a view a version of her definition about it is womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which kind of
1: wow. <laughs> right, right, right. So it includes feminism but it's bigger, right? And it gets at Stronger, and there's a sense of which of which deeper. the you know uh-huh. feminism at least in the 80s, you know, early waves like came to be associated with white women, Absolutely. Right? So that she's pushing back on that but Absolutely. at the same time she's not saying you know we have to repudiate that right. we just we need, need to make it bigger right, right. We make it right. part of this right. this larger thing which then i think sort of invites us to talk a little bit more about you know her african american identity yes. in, in this uh yeah which
0: um, which again piece. is is absolutely um distinct mhm um and I mean, people tend to think African Americanism is difference feminism, but she has her African Americanness at the center of this without ever yeah, sort right. of having to gloss it yeah. as as in some ways unusual. I mean, there's yeah. you know we we get African American practices like Good. put the root medicine of the lily leaves for injuries, mm-hmm. the warm oils and hot bricks for illness. Um, We get heteroglossic African-American phrasing. It doesn't need to be um, footnoted or anything. We figure it out. Twice she says her patent leather shoes are biscuit polished. The women in the church say that girl's a little mess, and that's (laughs) praise. Her favorite teacher is someone who knew me before I was born. I mean, these all play into it. And I think also... It's inseparable from an emphasis on class and the mm-hmm. relationship of race and class, again, to think intersectionally. Um, they're poor sharecroppers, and yet we don't hear poverty except in how white people treat them. Miss right. May offering her mother 35 right. cents for a tremendous amount of work. The white man refusing mm-hmm. to pick them up because they need to go to the hospital. You know, yeah, and these. right, right. I mean— these are these are racism imposed from without um yeah, yeah. as yeah.
1: yeah no i think that's really good the way in which you know she's she takes for granted so much right, right. and and then it's sort of on on you know non-african americans who aren't part of that culture right. to do a little work right right and then you know and then we just have these reminders of yep. what it's like to be like with miss may and right. and the the white driver right. who, um who pulls over but won't actually be a good Samaritan yes Um, for sure yeah yeah yeah. so and then I think you know another feature of the identity is disability right and and so you know what do you well and it's so
0: interesting you mentioned that because you know when I first started teaching this story which happened even before I came here in 1997 we didn't necessarily talk about disability narrative, mm-hmm. and, and reading it this time, I thought, my gosh, yeah. it's so central to story. Yeah. Um, well, the story, yeah. how loss of vision changed her self-perception. And, and the emphasis stated twice in the story that eyes are sympathetic, and if one goes mm-hmm. blind, the other likely will. I mean, that anxiety and fear
1: right.
0: of where this will go, how it will transform her and then the process which i think is what i find so moving in it of coming to love her difference right exactly and, and yeah to, you know you're talking before
1: yeah. about turning points yeah, right oh yes. so so the big turning point is when rebecca her daughter absolutely <laughs> says that to her you yep, know yep yep and then you're the, yeah, right so there's that, a so, world in your eye uh, yeah and so <laughs> yeah. The, the, the you know what we be considered as a disability rather than deficiency becomes this positive thing right Oh, and and, yes. and then my pain for the most part ended. Then and
0: then right. It's as yeah. if it it embraces her and becomes all encompassing. You know, I was curious about. this. said, I thought, gee, when did we first see those moonshots? Because there's also just yes. as a side mention, there's all these contemporary references right. in it. I mean, I don't know that my students know who. Knew who Hopalong Cassidy was, and forget Tom Mix or right. Lash Larue. Right. They didn't know that before 196. We didn't have those NASA shots of Earth as seen from the moon. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. very much. And now I think students probably think, oh, sure, that's always how it was, and yeah. And so it's it's very embedded in certain histories too. And and I do think it could be read as a story embedded in how how. Coming to see disability differently and the relationship of, of multiple kinds of differences as defining of, of an I not as separate or, mm-hmm. or injured, but in a sense as made intact through that process of maybe it's recognition, to use another sight metaphor, but it's also very bodily. It's embracing yeah. oneself through an other who becomes something other than other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know, you're you're mentioning of the um, sort of references, um, you know, the poem about the desert, yeah. right, which makes such a, a big thing about the flags, right. <laughs> the flags. There's no flag on the moon, and right. you know that kind right. of thing, you know. And so we're thinking about you know it, those images uh, from outer space and so on, but also, you know, the her. Um, <laughs> As, again, kind of embedded um, political politics, right? Yes. Right. We don't need the flags on the moon. And if the flags were the, were up there, would the trees actually, you know, <laughs> right. uh, would the desert be so beautiful? That's right.
0: Right. Yeah. It's right. it's sort of subtly anti-colonial in yeah. terms of saying, hey, right. we move. Let's move beyond that 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 possessiveness of, yeah. of, of about.
1: Yeah, and this is sort Space. of uh, expanding the idea of vision and what we what we see and right. and, and the metaphors of um, the beauty of the desert is another kind of beauty and the beauty of the trees and right. how that may be threatened by yes <laughs> this sort and of the point.
0: seeing of each singly and of course remembering um, I mean for many people the desert is an appalling sight it's an yes, you know right. it's a lack of. Beautiful things. It's arid and empty, and yeah. and I mean, for kids growing up in Ohio, it would be a new experience. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and it is sort of discovering, but also coming to recognize a, a different idea of beauty, and one uh-huh. and one yeah. that's felt also as much as it's seen. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, right? Because I think uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe we can just. Sort of start to move toward the end sure. there by thinking about what she's doing with the concept of beauty and and how that's relating to mm-hmm. some of what we've been mm-hmm. talking about with the turning point and and so on, and then right. th- that could set us up for talking about the last paragraph,
0: sure, sure, well, you know, I mean, this is I think very much a woman's story in some ways, beauty. Mm-hmm. The the title of it yeah. is a central thing throughout this story, repeated at many points, right. a shame ab- uh, about when her eye becomes ugly, and we get a very powerful sense of how ugly it became with a whitish glob hanging over it, yeah. um, looking at it in the mirror and abusing it, because the mm-hmm. mirror, which gives you, in a sense, your first experience of a second self, yeah. reflects back to her this diminished and horrific view of herself, <clears throat> and yeah. so many views in this, and then coming to see a doubled self in, in which she can affirm beauty and even become the queen of the high school prom. Yeah, right, right. You know, but I think, as you say, in part through the desert, but it's also, in a sense, in the last paragraph, well, no, in the last part of the story, it's in a sense two embraces the embrace of her child and the child's mm-hmm. um, lack of meanness, the right. child's, right. you know, embracing of right. her and the embracing in her dream of a second self. Mm-hmm. It always chokes me up. Yeah. That will always love her. Yeah, that's a redefinition of beauty from what is only seen to what. She calls at one point in the story Inner Vision, which actually takes us all of the way to the Stevie Wonder of the early 70s, yeah. one of his whose albums at that time is called Inner Vision and, of course, who's blind almost right, from right. birth yeah. and whose work is tremendously about Inner Vision.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so her, you know, choice of Stevie Wonder oh. is it's just so, you know— Almost always determined <laughs> right. right I mean the, you know the power of the music the but the you know the, the way it connects with vision and, and also you know time right, right. again um, but yeah. but then you know in that in that last paragraph um, you know, maybe just talk a little bit more about why you feel it so powerfully. Maybe uh, you know, partly as an ending, but also yeah. maybe partly as just what's happening there. And
0: well, I mean, I find it's you know, in a sense, I haven't fully worked it through after, with a story. My gosh, I must have read this story fifty yeah. times, and it's there's still new things for me in it. Um, and it's it's of course a transition. There have been no dreams in this story. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's been no sort of emphasis on subjective psychic life in yeah. quite these terms to this point. It's been very grounded in the physical real, and this mm-hmm. is other than possibly the desert scene and the, and the dream with and the de, uh, poem with the desert. But um, – and it's not that it's in – and it's back in the present tense after the yes. second to the last po- paragraph that isn't, which – is with with her daughter. But it's a different present than we've had before, I think, in that it's a present of the now moment of the narrating eye rather than a retrospective present in a certain sense. It's, yeah. it's almost a kind of uh, – it's an, an embrace um, without a sense of defeat, mm-hmm. I guess, or accommodation. It's very different from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the time is, is also complicated, right? Because mm-hmm. she th- she says at the beginning, you know, uh, of the paragraph, that night I dream, right? right? So this That's is the, true. Night, the night, That's right? true. But by the time we get to the end, right, um, the other dancer has obviously come through all right, as I have done. She is beautiful, whole, and free. Right. And she is also so, me. That, yeah. that, that present seems to... Extend into the time of the yeah. telling, right? right. I mean, you that, have the sense that, that it's
0: an opening, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, there's a kind of uh, then emerging mm-hmm. of the of the retrospect the historical present and the simultaneous oh, present that's good. that we yeah. talked about in that last, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that last sentence, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's you know, ending, right? I mean, that's right, f-
0: but it's an ending without closure yes. in a certain way, which that's is right. what I like to say about life writing, that it, you know, yeah, I mean. As we know, that was forty years ago, right. and it goes on, and, yeah. and that it that it opens in a sense to continuing to live, and
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. right, absolutely. It's not, it's not like okay, <laughs> you know, we won't be interested in right. other things that Alice Walker might have experienced or we'll we'll run right. uh, write about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, that's yeah. great. Um, Julia, is there anything else that do you like us to? Touch on that we haven't gotten to?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I'm so fascinated in this story with something that's very autobiographical, which is how much there's an interplay between I as organ of sight mm-hmm. and the formation, construction, consolidation of an eye and in multiple eyes that are shifting and changing rather than firmly defined forever. So I would just, yeah. you know, to me, in a sense, when you've got at the end – the world in her eye, and we literally almost see that blue-white earth in her left eye. Yeah. Well, which I would say, by the way, this is the one thing. See, I have a little note on this. Okay. Uh, and this is about the difference of autobiography, right? Okay. Because students always wanted to say, "So, what in this is true? If this is uh-huh. life writing, uh-huh. yeah. right? Okay. What's real, and what did she make up?" Yeah. And this is an interesting story to talk about that mm-hmm. with, because, of course, verifiably, Alice Walker has a, has a blind left eye. Mm-hmm. Verifiably, she was raised by shock, shock, uh, sharecroppers. sharecroppers in southern Georgia. And um, her, she has a daughter, Rebecca, who's mm-hmm. a writer, etc. But that gets um, merged, and it can't really be disentangled from this notion of Inner vision and a mm-hmm. dream of merging with another who is not other, um, and that's a that's a moment of recognition that I, I try to talk to students. Oh, maybe more with grad students, I get successful with this. But to think about the difference of that as an intersubjective truth yeah. from the truth of fact, yes, right? right? Which things right. like having an eye injury or growing up in Georgia are. So, yeah. so in a sense, it's a useful story for thinking about. Making truth more complicated, I would say,
1: yeah, right, and uh, I mean, one way would be to think about it i't just you know you can tell me if this makes sense to you, uh, sort of the difference between historical narrative, kind of rooted in facts and reconstruction right. of facts and finding relationships between them, and you know life writing, which mm. is about the significance of those facts for the self and you know others in the self's life and right. so on, right? So there's sort of the 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 force of mm-hmm. the life writing is it's dependent on the verifiable, but it's yes. not uh, exhausted by the verifiable. No, not at exhausted,
0: all. and the interpretation may change in the process even of writing mm-hmm. or telling or performing in some medium the narrative. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. that. It's that the the experience of that external world, if you will, is not so fixed, but right. but shifts in relation to how one relates to it yeah. or is related upon.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Okay. Well. So excellent. I
0: guess that's where I'd want to leave it. I mean, we could talk about authenticity too, but that wouldn't get. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> that's. Almost impossible.
1: Okay. All right. Well, great. Thanks so much. Well, well thank really you, Jim. A, a good session. Great. Uh, so I just want to say uh, to our listeners, uh, thank you, and we are always um, happy to receive feedback, um, either uh, through our Facebook page or at projectnarrative.osu.edu um, or on our Twitter account, um, PN. We are at PN Ohio State. And also I want to uh, end with the coming attraction Uh, next month on a date still to be determined. um, Brian McHale will uh, move into the host chair and I will move into the guest chair. And we will discuss a short story by T.C. Boyle called Chicksaloop. So tune in for that and we'll let you know when it's available. Thanks again, Julia.
0: Thank you, Jim.